Good morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you now, and we pray that Christ would be exalted in these moments, that we would behold the wondrous mystery of who Christ is and what he's done for us. Tune our hearts, Lord, to sing thy praise. May you increase in these moments, we pray. Bring forth your spirit, move in our hearts to receive this word that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What is the most amazing thing that you've ever seen? Try to think about it. Something that you cannot believe your eyes. You didn't think that was possible. Maybe it was some kind of sports event where something crazy happened. Didn't expect. Maybe it was something in nature. Maybe it was that somebody changed who they thought never would. Usually, I see unbelievable things like these. I turn to Lisa and I say, what am I watching right now? Or, is this real life? And I feel like for many people, including myself, this would be a difficult question to answer. But there is a group of people who were at the temple a little less than 2,000 years ago who would know the answer to this question for themselves. Imagine that you're with them and you're going to the temple in Jerusalem like you normally do on a day that seems like any other day. Now, you may notice one small difference at first, that you walk through the same gate you always do. And normally there's a man sitting here begging for alms who's lame. And you notice that he's not there today, which is odd because he's always there. Maybe something happened to him. Anyways, you walk in, and there's a huge commotion going on in Solomon's portico. Now, Solomon's portico is a large open-air part of the temple with a roof over it, with big pillars holding it up. And you see all these people are running over there to see something, thousands of people. And it seems like everyone you see is headed over there, which is odd, so might as well go check it out. And as you get closer, you see there's this man there who's really excited about something. He's jumping around, praising God, and you begin to see who the man is and start to make him out and get, wait a second, that can't be, that can't be the lame beggar. It's not possible. The beggar can't walk and he hasn't been able to for 40 years. And so you lean over to the guy next to you, hey, did you happen to see the beggar at the gate this morning? And he says, no, I didn't. Do you think that's him? And as you get closer, you realize, well, I mean, that's definitely him, but how is that possible? You and everyone else there are flabbergasted, utterly astounded. Who did this? How did this happen? As you're watching, you notice that the beggar is is hanging out really close to these two guys and And you hear the rest of the crowd murmuring things and saying things like, these two guys healed him. Are they angels? Are they the most righteous people we know? How much power do you think they have? Your head is spinning. What am I watching right now? Is this real life? That's what they were wondering. 
This is the most amazing thing that these people have ever seen. And so you can imagine that they would want someone to explain to them what's happening, what's going on here. And sure enough, one of the men, Peter, starts to address everyone. And he starts by asking a question. Let's look at our first two verses this morning. Verses 11 and 12. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? And so we have now another example in Acts of a spectacle happening that draws crowds followed by Peter preaching. And Peter begins by rephrasing the question that everyone already thinks they know the answer to, which is who did this? And Peter starts off by saying, we didn't do this. Why do you wonder at this or look at us as though it was us? Our own power did not do this. Our own piety, and piety is just another word for godliness, our own piety or godliness did not do this. We did not make this man walk. Everyone assumes that it was all on Peter and John because they were the ones who told him to get up. And so notice the example that they set for us in giving God credit when they could have taken it for themselves. So Peter starts off by saying, no, it wasn't us. But he does clarify that yes, someone or something made this man walk. He could not walk before. Now he can. So if you were wondering, is this the guy who couldn't walk? It is. Okay, Peter. Now I have to know. You didn't do it. Who did it? Who did this? Well, the short answer would be Jesus. Jesus did it. But notice that Peter doesn't just say Jesus and leave it at that. He doesn't just answer the question as simply as possible and then leave. Because he's not mainly concerned that people just know the answer to a question. What he wants is for people to know who Jesus is. He wants people to know who Jesus is, who the Christ is. And so he describes Jesus. And notice again, the example that Peter sets for us in being ultimately concerned with people knowing Christ. That should be our concern. To want people to know who Jesus is and be willing and able to talk about him with others. So then the rest of this passage is Peter's message. And one way that has helped me to think about it is that first he talks about the past, what has happened. Then he talks about the present, what should happen right now. And then he talks about the future. And finally, then he summarizes the whole thing. So that's what we're going to walk through now, past, present, future, and then a summary. So first, we start with the past in verses 13 through 18. Let's read that section first. Starting in verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life 
whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So these are all the things that have already happened. There are three things. First, Jesus was glorified by the Father. He tells them that the God of their fathers, the God that they claim to serve, glorified his servant, Jesus. When it says glorified here, we're talking about Jesus being raised up, not just from the dead, but also to the right hand of the Father. Jesus was raised up and exalted by God the Father. And in this passage, Peter uses a lot of language from the Old Testament to illustrate to these guys that Jesus is the Christ. And so here, when Peter says that God glorified his servant Jesus, he may be thinking of Isaiah 52, 13, which says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So in Isaiah, this is the Christ. And so when Peter says that God glorified his servant Jesus, he is saying Jesus is the Christ. So that was the first thing that Peter says happened. Jesus was glorified by the Father. The second thing that has happened, and notice these are not in chronological order, the second thing that has happened in the past is you killed Jesus. You killed the Christ. And Peter talks about this a little while because he wants them to feel the weight of what they did in killing Jesus. God sent him to you, but you sent him to be killed. You denied who God accepted. Even Pilate decided to release him, but not you. You rejected as unholy and unrighteous, the only holy and righteous one. You set free a murderer so that you could take the life of the author of life. You killed God, the God you claim to worship. You murdered the one who created you. And for the record, you thought you got rid of him. You didn't. Because God raised him from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. We saw him. Now Peter makes this point about killing Jesus so clear because he wanted them to know, and God wants us to know, why rejecting Jesus is so bad. Rejecting Jesus is terrible because of who he is. Rejecting Jesus is terrible because of who he is. He is God's glorified servant. The holy and righteous one and the author of life. Again, these are terms that the Old Testament uses to describe the Christ. The Jews' rejection of Jesus is heinous because of who he is. Our 
rejection of Jesus is heinous because of who he is. And you'll notice how everything revolves around Jesus. Do we accept or reject him? If we reject him, and at some point in every person's life before being saved, we did reject him. And when we rejected him, we did what the Jews did. And if you're here this morning and still rejecting Jesus, you're doing what these men did. You are rejecting as unrighteous and unholy, the holy and righteous one. You are counting the author of life as being worthy of death. And you think that you've gotten rid of him, but you haven't because God raised him from the dead. And to this, we are witnesses. So that was the second thing. They killed Jesus. The third thing that has happened in the past, though very recently, is in verse 16, where it says, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So the third thing that has happened, this man was healed. This man was healed. Who healed this man? That's really what the Jews wanted to know. Who did this? Jesus did it. How was this man healed? He was healed through faith. He believed in the name of Jesus of Nazareth and became strong. This man, yep, is this guy you saw all those years sitting by the gate, the lame man that you all know, he was given perfect health by the faith that is through Jesus. And how did this faith come to him? It came through Jesus. This lame man did not just conjure up faith in himself, right? You just make it happen. No, it came through Jesus. And this man's physical condition is meant to be a picture of our spiritual condition. We can't just conjure up the faith necessary because our sin cripples us. We are lame. But God awakens faith in us, and it is through faith in Jesus that we are made strong and given perfect spiritual health. This lame man here could not heal himself, and the spiritually lame cannot heal themselves. God must heal and God must save. Now, I want to take a quick moment to address here something that is taught in many places around the world and in many churches. And it's related to, to something that Daniel was bringing out last week about healing, which I appreciate so much, brother. I bring it up here now because I know that they would use this verse to teach it. They teach that God wants to physically heal every person. And if you are not healed of your disease or disability, it is because you don't have enough faith. It's your fault, basically. If you had enough faith or believed the right things, or learned the right lessons, you'd be healed. That's what is taught. And Lisa and I recently visited another church where the preacher taught this. Literally, that if God hasn't healed you of your physical ailments, it is because you are doing something wrong. This teaching is false. And I mention this because I know that any one of those preachers would teach that from this passage. They would say, look at this guy. 
he had enough faith, so God healed him. And if you aren't healed, it's because you don't have enough faith. It's sick. And why then is that idea so wrong? We'll be assured there are many reasons, but I will give two. First, it makes everything about us and not about God. In this passage here, who gets credit? The man or Jesus? Jesus does. That's fairly clear. It says in verse 16 that Jesus' name has made this man strong and that the faith given to this man through Jesus has perfectly healed him. This was not about the man. This story is not about the man. It wasn't dependent on whether he had enough faith. It wasn't about him. It was about Jesus. And those who teach that God primarily wants to heal everyone's health problems make God all about us when God is actually all about God. We are not the point. God is. In this story, the man is not the point primarily. God is. And when we portray God as a big genie in the sky who will give us whatever we want if we rub the lamp just right, we no longer have the God of the Bible. God, because of his loving grace, chose to heal this man. And he did it so that Jesus would be magnified. And if we make the error of giving ourselves the power to heal, we are magnifying ourselves rather than Christ. Peter and John flat out deny that their power healed this man. They knew what it was about. God did it. That's the first problem with this teaching. The second problem with this teaching is that it confuses eternity with this life. It confuses eternity with this life. I do have good news for you. One day, all of your physical sicknesses and disabilities and diseases will be completely and perfectly healed in heaven. God will give you perfect physical health, but not yet. And in the meantime, he wants Jesus to be exalted in your life regardless of our health. Can Jesus be exalted through healing? Absolutely. And we should pray for healing and rejoice when God does heal, whether in extraordinary or in ordinary ways. Sorry, I lost my place. (laughs) But Jesus becoming more precious to us, Jesus being shown through our lives most often happens through suffering. The Bible says so. Just ask the Apostle Paul. Maybe the godliest person to have ever lived suffered more than anyone else. While you're looking at Paul, look at Jesus, who was perfect, yet despised, rejected, and crucified. So know this. Godliness does not reduce suffering. So God may heal. God may not heal. It doesn't depend on you, but on God. And may God get the glory in whatever the outcome of our bodies happens to be. Close parenthesis. (laughs) 
So these are the three things that has happened in the past. God has glorified his servant Jesus. You killed Jesus. And this man was healed by Jesus. Peter then goes back and says, okay, I answered your question. But let's get back to the bigger issue. This whole you killing Jesus thing. Let's read verses 17 and 18 again. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So Peter says, I know that you all acted in ignorance. You didn't fully understand that Jesus was the Christ, though you should have. And I want you to know that God said this would happen. He said by the mouths of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer. They might think of some lines from Isaiah 53. For example, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Peter is telling them, the crushing reality is that God fulfilled these things through your sin. Your ignorance. You should have known. But you didn't. And now you have a burden of sin on you that you cannot bear. You can imagine that many of the people listening to him probably feel distraught. Many of them just feel sick, cut to the heart, that they killed the Christ. Some of them were probably there at the time, yelling, crucify him, crucify him. We've all had experiences where we've done something in the moment that didn't seem that bad, didn't seem like that big a deal. And then later on, the shame of what we've done, the regret. That's what these men are experiencing on an extremely high level for what they've done. Which brings us to the present. In verse 19, it says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Peter calls them to respond to what has happened in the past. Repent and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. He's already made clear to them that they are in deep trouble. They killed the Christ. The one that all of their ancestors were looking for. They rejected and denied him. So what can be done? What should we do? Peter knows what they should do. And this is the same answer that he would give to anyone here who is rejecting Christ. You need your sins to be blotted out. You need your sins to be erased because they condemn you. Your sin is a death sentence. So don't be ignorant any longer. You should know that your sin is going to be dealt with one way or another. But how does this happen? How do we get our sins blotted out? He says, repent and turn back. Repent and turn back. Acknowledge your sins before God and turn away from those things. 
turn away from rejecting and denying Christ and accept him. Turn away from calling Jesus unholy and unrighteous and worship him as the holy and righteous one. Turn away from treating Jesus as a murderer and instead as the author of life. Despise your sins. We've all done many things wrong. We've all disobeyed God in many ways. But those things can be blotted out in the same way that this man was healed. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Those things can be forgiven right now. We can be made strong. Our souls can be made perfectly healthy if we repent and turn to Christ. So this is the call that Peter gives to the people listening. It is the call that Peter gives to us. And he wants to illustrate what will happen depending on our response to this call. And so now we move to the future. What will happen? Verses 20 through 24. There are two future things that are happening. And we'll read them when we get there. But the first thing that will happen in the future depends on if we repent and have our sins blotted out. It says, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And then in verse 20, that times of, of excuse me, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What are times of refreshing? When Peter uses this term, one thing that I think we're meant to think of is breathing easy. Think about if you have some huge weight on you or something closed around you that prevents you from being able to take a full breath. It's almost unbearable. But finally, to be able to breathe in. There's a medical condition I just learned about. It has a weird name, though. It's called funnel chest. Funnel chest. People are born with their sternum collapsed down and in way further than it should be. It constricts their lungs so much that in serious cases, they can't hardly do anything without getting out of breath because they can't take a deep breath because their rib cage is so constricted. One person I saw described it as being strangled from the inside. Now, there's a surgery to fix this where they open it up. And those who have that surgery often describe themselves as having so much potential compared to before. Before, they couldn't do anything. And now they feel like they've had an elephant on their chest their whole life and didn't realize it. But now they have freedom to do so much more than they could have imagined because they can breathe easy. And these times of refreshing here are times of breathing easier because we don't have this huge crushing burden to carry anymore, the burden of our sin, like an elephant standing on us. These are times of being able to breathe easy, knowing that our punishment has been given to someone else on our behalf, to Jesus, who lived that perfect life and took our burden, what was crushing us, and took it upon himself. And now, what freedom we have in Christ. What potential we have with God working in us if we repent. 
The second thing that the future holds is in verses 20 and 21. I'll start in verse 19 again. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So the second thing here that the future holds is the second coming of Christ. Jesus will come back again. It says here that God may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Peter is saying, Jesus is the Christ, the one whom God sent for you. He appointed Jesus for you. This is who you've been waiting for. And God will send him again. For now, though, Jesus has been received into heaven until the time comes for restoring all things. So, Jesus, the Christ, came for you. He is now gone up into heaven and will come back when it is time for restoring all things. The world is broken. All of creation waits with eager expectation for Jesus to come back and make everything right to make everything whole again. And this time for restoring all things is good news for some and bad news for others. For those who are trusting in Jesus as their Christ and Lord, we long for that day. And like I said earlier, we can breathe easy knowing that the restoring of all things will be a great day for us as we enter into our Father's kingdom forever. But for those who are not trusting in Jesus, this will be a dark and terrifying day. They will not be breathing easy. As they try to carry their own burden of sin, Christ will return to destroy sin once and for all, along with those who are still holding on to it. If we continue to cling to our sin rather than to Jesus, Jesus will cast us with our sin out of his presence forever where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can't cling to both Jesus and your sin. So Peter, after describing these future events, he says, hey, by the way, the prophets have been saying this from the beginning that the Christ would come to gather a people for himself. And whoever doesn't come to him will be punished when the end comes. And then Peter illustrates this by quoting something that Moses said back in Deuteronomy 18. He quotes this in verses 22 and 23. He says, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So we see the point that Peter's making. Moses prophesied that God would raise up his ultimate prophet from the nation of Israel that we need to listen to. And anyone who does not listen to that prophet will be destroyed from the people. 
That prophet is Jesus. That's what Peter is telling us. And, oh, by the way, he says in verse 24, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. This is why the prophets spoke. To point you to Jesus. To say, someone is coming who is able to save people from their sins. To blot out their sin. To restore to them perfect spiritual health. And he is coming again. And these days, how it says that at the end of 24, they proclaimed these days. These days that the prophets prophesied about, we are still in these days. The days between when Jesus came the first time and when he comes the second time. The days where you still have the option to repent and turn back. You still have the option to listen to this prophet and whatever he tells you. You still have that option right now, today. But one day, that will no longer be an option. When Jesus returns to restore all things, the window of opportunity to believe in Jesus will close. The window of opportunity to repent and turn back, to have our sins blotted out, to enter into times of refreshing without the crushing weight of sin, to receive Jesus as the Christ that God appointed for us, that window of opportunity will close at some point. It'll be too late with no second chances. And so the urgency of this message is for all of us to preach the gospel to dying people all around us. We still live in the days the prophets proclaimed. Days where people can turn to Jesus. But one day they will not be able to. For every single person, these days can end today. These days will be cut short, either by your death or by the second coming of Christ. So may everyone here take the opportunity that God has graciously given you, this opportunity that you do not deserve to repent and turn back. So that is the future. And now Peter finishes his message with a summary of all that he has just said. Let's read verses 25 and 26. It says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. He says, listen, guys, you're descendants of the prophets. You're sons of the covenant that God made to Abraham. You know this stuff. Do you remember how God made a promise to Abraham? He promised Abraham all the way back, Genesis 22, 18, that in his offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, guess what? That offspring has come. That offspring is Jesus, and God has already raised him up. He not only raised him from the dead, 
but raised him to sit at his right hand in heaven. And so God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first. You're the men of Israel. The Christ was raised up from among your brothers. He preached his message all over Israel, and now that message is being brought to you once more through us right now. He came to you first, and he came, as was told Abraham, to bless you. And not only you, but all the families of the earth. It's through Jesus that all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, I want us to really understand what the word blessed means here. Because we use this word a lot, I feel, in our culture. Blessed. I'm blessed because I got a big bonus this year. For example, I'm blessed because my children are little angels. I'm blessed because I get to go on a lot of great vacations. Our church is blessed because we get to build a bigger building. And on and on. Now, here's the thing. I don't want to poo-poo those things. Those things are blessings. Because every good and perfect gift is from above. But what we want to know is what does the Bible mean when it calls us blessed? Does the Bible say that you're blessed because of what you're able to buy? No, it doesn't. Does the Bible say that you're blessed because of how nice and tidy your life is? It does not. How big your home or your church is? It does not. And this is really important for us to get because it says in verse 25 that Jesus came so that all the families of the earth would be blessed. We have to understand what blessed means. So what does it mean to be blessed? Well, verse 26 answers that question for us. It says, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. You are blessed if you are turned away from wickedness. God has blessed you if he has turned you away from your wickedness. All these other blessings, though they are good, all the other blessings in the world pale in comparison to God turning us away from our wickedness. God giving us repentance, that we would turn back and have our sins blotted out, is by far the most important blessing in the universe. So much so that someone could have everything else. They could have all the nicest things, the perfect family, the best vacations, you name it. But without being turned away from their wickedness, they are cursed. Are you blessed? Has God turned you away from your wickedness? Those are the same question. And the rest of the Bible talks this same way. Here's a couple examples, though there are many. Psalm 1-1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So that person who is not walking in sin, who is turned away from that walking in the counsel of wicked, standing in the way of sinners, sitting with scoffers, the person who is turned away from that is blessed. Second example, Jesus says in Luke 11.28, 
Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So are you blessed? You are if you have repented and turned back from your wickedness. Why is that what it means to be blessed? Because your sins are blotted out. The sins of denying, rejecting, and killing the author of life, the holy and righteous one, God's chosen servant and prophet. Why is that what it means to be blessed? Because times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord that you can breathe deeply once again without the crushing weight of your sin? Why is that what it means to be blessed? Because when Jesus comes back, he will come back to receive you. He will come back and say to you, you are mine. And that is what it means to be blessed. So I'll finish with this. This is the most amazing thing that these people have ever seen. And if we were there, this would be the most amazing thing that we had ever seen. Why did it happen? Why did it happen? It happened so that Jesus would be magnified, that Jesus would be proclaimed, and that Jesus would be believed on in the world. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you and to me to bless us by turning us away from our wickedness. Now we're going to turn to a time of corporate prayer. So let us pray in light of this message. And in addition to that, we're going to have these prayer requests for this project that we're embarking on, this building expansion. So let's pray that God would provide everything necessary to glorify him in this season. And not only that, but also that God would give unity to us as a body as we walk down this road together, which can be fraught with many dangers. So please pray out as you feel led. Pray loud enough that others may hear, and then I will close us. Yes, Father, we we come humbly to you, knowing that you did this in us. And we praise you for that, Lord. We praise you for what you accomplished through Jesus Christ. And then how all these things that are ours in Christ that we didn't deserve, it's amazing. We praise you for that, God. May we continue to be a church that exalts Christ, that this is what it's about as we walk through this project, this process of building, Lord, the temptation will be strong to divert our focus to other things. Lord, keep us focused on the point of it all, and that is Christ. May we exalt Jesus in all that we do. Keep our hearts focused on that, Lord. And we pray that, that you would give us unity as a church, as we walk through this, that we would want to display to those of the world that we are followers of Christ because of our love for one another. May we glorify you, Lord, as we walk. And we just pray that you would continue to transform lives, that you would make those who are spiritually lame to walk and leap for joy at the burden 
that they no longer have to bear. Accomplish these things for the sake of your name and the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.